0: Good morning, good to see all of you uh, together this morning. It's good for our family to be back. We were out of town, as most of you know, last week, and so it's good to be back together with our church family, worshiping the Lord with you. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis today, but we're going to be in a variety of different places in Genesis, so if you want to go to Genesis 1, if it feels good for you at the beginning to turn somewhere, uh, then go to Genesis 1 because that's where we're going to start out today. Today but I want to, do want to, uh, to recognize the fact of, that Father's Day is a uh, great day and also a challenging day for us. We talk about this on Mother's Day a lot, uh, but we don't often talk about it on Father's Day. Uh, but Father's Day can be a difficult day for dads as well. Uh, for those of us who have had difficult experiences with our fathers, uh, this is a, a very difficult day. For those of us Fathers who have regrets about some of the decisions that we've made in parenting along the way, uh, this can be a painful day of reminders about some of those things. Uh, but we want you to be encouraged in the word today, Father. We are thankful for our many good fathers that that uh, God has given in our congregation. And one of the things that we take great hope in is whether you have been, in your own estimation, a good father or a bad father. Whether your father has been a good father or a bad father, in your estimation, uh, we have a good father in our Lord, and we are thankful that he has adopted us, that he has brought us into his family, and that we will live forever as his beloved children, and that's a great thing to be encouraged by this morning. The sermon today is going to be a little bit different than it was, uh, than, than we normally do. Uh, it's going to be a little bit more similar to uh, what we did for Mother's Day in that we are going to be doing some theological reflection this morning. A lot of times what we do is we, we take a passage and we pick it apart and we read through the whole thing and we see what God has for us out of that, but what we want to do Instead, today is talk about some theological concepts, and then we want to relate some of those theological concepts specifically to fathers. And so, uh, as we do just a couple of times throughout the year, the the preaching today is going to be more targeted at a specific group than it normally is. And yet, I think the things that we take away from the Bible today are going to be helpful to all of us, whether you are a father or not. As I said, we're going to be doing some theological reflection this morning on an important theological concept. In fact, this is one of the most important theological concepts in the entirety of Scripture. And not only is it one of the most important theological concepts in Scripture, it is one of the very first that we are introduced to. It is the doctrine of the imago Dei. That's a Latin phrase that you might see as you read books and articles that it, that it refers to the fact that human beings are made by God in His image, the image of God. If you're there in Genesis chapter 1, you can look with me at verses 26 and 27, Because in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, the word of God says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. In case you, you there's any danger of missing it, those two verses use that term, image, three times. And then there's another term that's also added to it, likeness. So in the very first chapter of one of the most foundational books in all of Scripture, we meet this theological concept that human beings have been made in the image and likeness of God. And this is a privilege that is given to no other creature in all of creation. Humanity stands alone as the crown jewel of all of God's creating work. And the Bible says that we are made in his image. Now there are Many, many ways that we could explore what it means to be made in God's image, but there are two foundational concepts, particularly that we find in Genesis, the book that we are studying through together. And those two foundational concepts that are related to the image of God are these. The fact that you have been made in God's image means that you both reflect Him and represent Him in His creation. Think about that. Think about who you are, and then consider the fact the Bible tells you that you are a finite reflection of the infinite God. What a privilege that is. And not only are you a finite reflection of the the infinite God, but we have been placed in creation as God's representatives. In, in ancient times, kings would have their rule represented throughout their empire by having images of themselves spread throughout that empire. So that king would have statues in public squares in significant cities throughout the empire, and when When money needed to be minted, when coins needed to be made, those coins would have the image of the king on those, and there would be representations of whose rule they were under all throughout the empire. And as we look at creation, God places human beings in creation to represent his rule in that creation. He gives us responsibility over that creation. The doctrine of the image of God is an absolutely essential doctrine because it establishes the inherent value of human beings. And in the culture that we are living in today and the world that we are living in today, we desperately need a robust recovery of the doctrine of the image of God that establishes humans' inherent value, all humans without exception. But of course, something happens in Genesis 3, doesn't it? Something significant happens in Genesis 3 because we find in Genesis 3 that the first human beings disregard and disobey God's authority over their lives. They have been given all of this privilege to reflect God, to represent His rule and creation, and rather than doing that as they should, they rebel against him and disobey him. And the Bible tells us that they eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And of course, this this sin, this throwing off of God's rule to rule themselves, has has far-reaching consequences. And as 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 God speaks a word over these people and he talks through the curse on creation and the curse and the way that this is going to affect these first human beings, we see that at the end of the curse, the final consequence is death. God tells them that they have been made from the dust of the ground, and to dust, all of us are going to return. If I could put it to you in a not so pretty visual, every single one of us is headed for the compost pile. And that is because of the far-reaching consequences of human sin. Sin destroys everything it touches. So the question we have to ask, knowing that our end is death, what impact does this have on the life of image bearers who were created to represent and reflect God like mirrors in his creation. Well, Genesis doesn't, doesn't teach us that directly. It shows us the impact of the fall. And I'm not going to take the time to walk through all of the ugly incidents that we have seen so far in the book of Genesis, but you don't need to make it very far in the Bible to see incredible human ugliness. The things that we are capable of doing to each other seem to know no bounds. The despicable nature of, of human behavior is, is sometimes something that we can't even speak about. The things that the Bible described to us are difficult to speak about in a mixed audience in a church service. Genesis shows us how far-reaching the consequences of the fall into sin are. Genesis shows us what the New Testament teaches us. And our brokenness through sin because of the fall is significant enough that theologians have, have a, a, a term, a phrase that they apply to the significance of this brokenness. They refer to it sometimes as total depravity. and You may have heard that phrase before. They use the term total depravity to describe the extent of that brokenness. Now, it is beyond the scope of this message to talk in depth about total depravity, but I want to make a couple of clarifying notes about it, because I think it's sometimes misunderstood by Christians. We have this word depravity Here in this phrase total depravity to describe the extent of the brokenness of sin. And when we hear the word depravity, that's a word that people on the news use to describe the worst possible kinds of human behavior, right? When you think about some of the most horrible things that get reported or that docu-series are made about on Netflix and we follow these twisted people throughout the course of their lives, their acts are Described as depraved, but depravity in this category refers to more than simply the worst acts of human beings. If you're, if you have a little child that you have put in their high chair for lunch, and you've put some some Cheerios on their tray, and they've been throwing them off the tray because that's a fun game and you tell them to stop throwing their Cheerios off the tray, and they do it anyway, you don't go back and tell your husband or your wife or somebody else the depravity of that child knows no boundaries. And yet, this is an example of depravity. It's not the worst that humans have to offer. It's the fact that sin is in every part of us. And that brings me to the word total in total depravity because when we hear the word total, we, we think about when your car has been totaled, it is a total loss. It is not worth repairing. And so that could clue in our mind or cause us to think that, that every human being is as bad as they could possibly be. But that's not the case either, is it? Thank God. Thank God that you and I are not as bad as we could possibly be in every instance. There's a theologian by the name of Michael Horton who clarifies the nature of total depravity when he says this in his systematic theology. He says, Total depravity therefore means not that we are incapable of any justice or good before fellow humans, but that there is no Archimedean point within us and an Archimedean point is a reliable starting point. So he says, there's no Archimedean point within us that is left unfallen from which we might begin to bargain or restore our condition. That's what total depravity is. So, so let me pull a couple of items out of that to just make sure that we, we have the correct categories in our minds. When we're talking about total depravity, we are not saying that people who aren't Christians are incapable of doing no good. There are examples all the time that point us in the in the completely opposite direction. There are lots of good things that human beings are capable of doing. What Horton is clarifying for us here is that when we talk about total depravity, We are talking about the fact that in me and in you, there is no part of us untouched by the corruption of sin. So, head, heart, hands, if you think of ourselves in three categories like that, there is no part of us, body, soul, or spirit, that is untouched and uncorrupted by sin. And because of that, because there is no part of us that is untouched by sin, there is no reliable starting point within us whereby we may take ourselves to God where we can find healing for ourselves within. We are totally depraved and thus totally dependent on God to do something for us that we are completely incapable of doing ourselves. That's what total depravity is. There's no way for you and I to repair our fallen condition on our own. So that leads me to ask another question then. Given the significance of the fall, and the fall has far-reaching consequences that touch absolutely everything, given the significance of the fall and the nature of total depravity... We ought to ask a question, has then the image of God in humanity been completely obliterated? Or is it broken? And I believe Genesis gives us a clue to the answer to that question. When Noah and his family are emerging from the ark after this terrible judgment that has been rained down on the earth where every living creature except those that are contained in the ark die. When they emerge from the ark, one of the things that God tells them is this in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6. It says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. The question that humanity might reasonably be asking post-flood is this. Is human life of no value to God and thus of no value to us? And there, the answer to that is a resounding no. Human life does matter to God and it should matter to us. And here God establishes the principle of lex talionis. This is that the punishment should fit the crime. If someone takes a life, then they forfeit their own life. And notice the basis for that statement. The basis for that statement is the last phrase in that verse. If you shed blood by man, should your blood be shed. Why? Because God made man in his own image. The Bible is telling us this centuries after the fall, centuries after what we could refer to as total depravity, descending upon the human race, we are still reflecting God's image. We are like shattered mirrors and every part of us is broken And when you look in a shattered mirror, you do not see a correct reflection, right? And so as shattered mirrors, we no longer reflect our Creator the way He intended us to. Yet we are still reflections of our Creator. Which is why the truth that I've been driving at and I want to underscore for you this morning is simply this. The image of God inhumanity, is broken but not obliterated. The image of God in humanity is broken but not obliterated. And so, at this point, you might be asking me the question, what does this have to do with Father's Day? Appreciate the theological treatise, But what does this have to do with Father's Day? And here's where we want to do a little bit of theological reflection together. There are all kinds of things that we could say about this. But the fact that the image of God, I'm speaking to fathers now specifically, but this applies to mothers and this applies more broadly uh, as well. The fact that the image of God, fathers, in your children is broken but not obliterated has a couple of implications that I want to highlight to you that I think are very important. Here's the first one. The fact that it's the image of God, the Imago Dei, is broken but not obliterated has implications for how we as fathers, in the first place, view our children. It has implications for how we view our children. In a sermon, there's a a pastor named Bachem that some of you may have heard of at one time or another. But in a sermon, he once described a child as a viper in a diaper. And he got the same laughs that I just got. He got more laughs because it was original with him and he was better at it. He was illustrating a biblical truth. That all of us are born in sin. We are born under the condemnation of our father, Adam. And so he was making, he is making a correct theological point. And he was making that point with humor on purpose. But there is a danger if that phrase becomes more than a joke. It is dangerous to see our children solely through the lens of total depravity. There are several different lenses that you can use to look at the world around you. One of them is a microscope. And when you look at things under a microscope, you can see details on things that are not visible to the naked eye. Microscopes are amazing in what they enable us to see about tiny particles. But have you ever seen a dust mite under a microscope? Your home, you may be the neatest freak of neat freaks, but your home is filled with millions of dust mites. Have you ever seen one under a microscope? they are terrifying. And if they were the size of a horse, the way they look under a microscope, I'd pack it up. I'm done with this life. If you could only see through a microscope, life could be terrifying. We use x-rays of various kinds to and various means. But if the only way that you could see was with the same tools that they use in the TSA as you spend two hours trying to get to your flight, if the only tool you had was x-ray vision, that that would be a difficult way to see the world, wouldn't it? We have things called night vision goggles. And I don't know exactly how they work, but they basically amplify low levels of light to make it possible for you to see in very low light conditions but you've probably seen what it looks like to look through night vision goggles it's kind of there's things that are green and there's things that are black and there are shapes there are thermal vision goggles that you can put on that give you a a heat map of a particular scene and so you can see things that are red hot all the way to a cool blue. All of these lenses give us true information about the world, don't they? When your suitcase is going through the TSA, they can see everything that's in your suitcase. When you look at a dust bunny under one of your couches, you can see a dust mite. When you look in the desert at night, You can use night vision goggles to see. All of those things are showing us true things, but none of those things gives us the whole picture. And in fact, you will have a distorted view of the world if the only way you view it is through night vision vision goggles or through thermal vision. The same is true for depravity. If depravity is the lens you use, the only lens you use, depravity is the only thing you will be able to see. Here's why I'm saying this, dads. If that's your only lens, then you may see your child's weaknesses as depravity. You may identify childish immaturity as depravity. You may see their lack of knowledge or wisdom as depravity. You may look at the personality traits that they have and their ways of processing the world and seeing things and responding things ways that may be incredibly foreign to you. And if the only lens that you've got to look at them is the depravity lens, then depravity might be all that you can see. How do I know this? Done that. I have mislabeled behaviors and things that I didn't understand because I only had one way to look at things and I'm trying to encourage us dads not to do that yes your children are totally depraved sorry kids Saw a couple of kids like, man, it's going in this morning. Our children are totally depraved. They are. There is no part of them that is unfallen. And that has to be a factor in how we relate to them and how we see them. But that image of God in them that is foundational from the very first chapter of Genesis 1 has not been obliterated. And dads, let me remind you of something this morning. Your children are magnificent. They are magnificent reflections of a magnificent creator. Take a moment To step back. And our relationships with our kids are complicated. Because you're like, magnificent, you have not met my kids. And it's true, it's true. Some of us have kids who have gone on to make some pretty rough decisions and there's disappointment that comes with that. And sometimes as we think about the difficult decisions that we that they've made, things that we disagree with raise them to do different it something in us shifts and changes and that's the only thing that we can see about them. So let me remind you, dads and moms, your children are magnificent image bearers because they reflect the likeness of their creator. And we need that lens to give us truth. We need other lenses. We need the whole picture. We need to view our children the right way. There's a second implication to the fact that the image of God in our children, though broken, has not been completely obliterated. It has implications for how we train our children. You see, how we see them affects how we interact with them, right? That's obvious. So it has implications for how we train our children. If depravity is the only lens that you have through which you view your children, then it will be very difficult not to have an adversarial relationship with them. Because all you are going to be trying to do is knocking down the depravity. In fact, Bacham, in that sermon goes on to say this of vipers and diapers. He says, one of the reasons God makes them so small is so they won't kill you. And one of the reasons God makes them so cute is so you won't kill them. And again, he said that in humor. But it highlights the potential of an adversarial relationship between fathers and children where we as fathers see our children as something to be conquered. Yet the Bible says something interesting. You you think about all the advice, all the the direction that the Bible gives to fathers that's that's direct, in the New Testament in particular. It's actually not a lot. One of the most direct pieces of instruction that the Bible gives to fathers is found in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4 in how they parent. And the Bible says this in Ephesians 6 and verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That word, bring them up, is an interesting word. Because the root of that word, bring them up, is the Greek word to nourish This idea of fathers bringing their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord carries with it this idea of of being a nourishing presence in their lives. And this nourishing presence that we are supposed to be in their lives is set in opposition to provoking them to anger. Now, we could talk a lot about this, and that's not the point today. But I'll just say this, dads, there is a parenting style that nourishes and there is a parenting style that provokes to anger. That nourishing, the Bible tells us, includes discipline and instruction. And so we have to rebuke and we have to discipline. And we have to correct. And we have to instruct. But we're to do that in a way that takes, that, that takes the malnourished and provides nourishment that enables our children to flourish. And most flourishing does not occur under the old iron fist. So yes, you've got to reckon, dads, with the fact that this little innocent baby is not quite as innocent as you thought. That they will take the Cheerios and throw them off in direct defiance of your orders. (laughs) But your children are also magnificently complex creatures. And God did not simply put you in their lives so that you could go to war with their sin nature. They need you to be a student of the image of God in them. What makes them tick? How do they work? What motivates them? What demotivates them? When they resist you, why? We never sometimes ask that question. What's going on behind the scenes? We're just like Balaam with his donkey railing. <laughs> not realizing that maybe there's something else going on. This is much harder to do, which is why we don't do it. I can't nourish my child during a commercial break of a football game when I hear yelling from the other room and I yell in there, stop yelling! that's often why we don't take the time to do it. We need to see our children the right way. We need to then interact with them the right way, train them the right way. If we're going to be the fathers, the parents, the grandparents, whatever it is that God has called us to be, then we're going to need to come to a greater appreciation for the Imago Day in them. We are, at the end of the day, a big collection of broken mirrors. And here's the thing. We are to discipline and train our children. We're to provide correction and instruction and rebuke as fathers. But dads, we've got to remember something. You can't fix this problem. You can't fix a broken mirror. I googled it last night. (laughs) Because I was going to say it. And then I thought, well, I wonder if you can fix a mirror. These are the things that go through my mind on Saturday, Saturday nights. And of course, I found a bunch of YouTube people saying, you how to fix a broken mirror. And I looked at it, and it's like was like, you're not really fixing the broken mirror. You're doing cool things with it, but you're not fixing the broken mirror, because you can't. And, and parents, our children are broken in a way that's outside of our ability to repair. Which means that a nourishing presence in their life means for as long as God gives us with them, taking them to the great mirror mender again and again and again. So that they understand my discipline can't fix you. You need to listen to me, and you need to do what I say. But we both desperately need Jesus. Because Jesus can actually fix shattered mirrors. There is great hope for broken people. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, reflecting on your track record of fatherhood as everyone does and feeling the regrets that go along with it. There's great hope for brokenness. Through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we can have the image of God that's been shattered in us, restored. And The Bible tells us that Christ died for our sins on the cross in our place, and then rose from the dead in victory over death and sin. And the Bible tells us that Jesus offers forgiveness for our sins to all of those who put their faith in Christ. But here's a wonderful thing that I've that I've already pointed you to this morning. Not only this coming to Jesus and repentance and faith, not only does He offer forgiveness, but listen to this, He offers transformation. He can start taking all those broken shards of you and start piecing them back together to make you whole again. Which is why the Bible tells us in Colossians 3 and verse 10, that those who trust Jesus have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So let me finish this way this morning. There may be somebody here this morning and you do not know Christ. That there has never been a time in your life where you have repented of your sins and you have put your faith in what Christ has accomplished for us through His death, burial, and resurrection, and so we, as a church congregation, call you to faith and repentance in Jesus, and we promise you that you that you will not only find forgiveness, you will find transformation. And to the fathers, and parents, and children who are here this morning, all of us have been born broken. God takes broken image bearers, all those fractured pieces, and through the work of Christ makes them whole. And we were singing about it today. We are changed into the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. And one day, friends, our faith is going to be sight. When we behold him, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the things that we have been able to reflect on today. We're thankful that you have revealed yourself to us in ways that we can understand. That we can know you. That we have been made in your image, and though we have fallen, though we have rebelled against you, though we have sinned against you, yet you pursue us with forgiveness and the promise that all the broken pieces of us will one day be made whole and we will reflect you once again as we should. I pray specifically for those of us who are fathers in the room today. I pray that you would help us to view our children rightly, that we would see the magnificence of your image in our children, that we would be faithful to discipline, that we would not provoke them to anger, but that we would bring them up, that we would nourish them, that we would take them again and again to the great mirror mender who makes us whole. We ask these things in his name. Amen.